Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. A surprise resignation. Alan Kelly says he's stepping down as leader of the Labour Party. We have the latest from Leinster House. The carnage continues in Ukraine as Russia bombards major cities across the country. And amid a push to slap sanctions on him for his alleged links to Vladimir Putin, Roman Abramovich says he's selling his stake in Chelsea Football Club. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, breaking news from the political world. Labour leader Alan Kelly has abruptly resigned. He made the announcement outside Leinster House earlier. I was advised by my parliamentary colleagues on Tuesday morning uh, that they had lost collective confidence in my leadership. Uh, This was a surprise to me, but I accepted the decision immediately. Um, We had a number of frank discussions in recent weeks, if I'm being honest, and especially over the last uh, week or so. And I have to acknowledge that we haven't been able, as a party, to move on in the opinion polls. Well, Virgin Media News political correspondent Gavin Riley is live now at Moore at Leinster House. Um, Gavin, a big ousting, the end of his leadership after uh, two years in the job. What's led to all of this? It is hard to see a, a real trigger point, Claire, and that is what was so surprising about this news when it first broke this afternoon, when we began to get wind earlier this afternoon that there was something in the offing or the perspective heave within the parliamentary party. And then by mid-afternoon, around half past four or five o'clock, the news officially emerging that he was about to resign. We could only surmise that it has a lot to do with the standing in the political opinion polls, various series of tracker polls, which would put the party at a, some, something of a ceiling of 5%, far below the level that it would need to be in order to be a really competitive force and to be back getting seats in the double digits in Dáil Éireann again and perhaps they think that Alan Kelly's lingering association with the government of 2011 to 2016 has been something of an issue there by his own admission the pandemic has made it very difficult for Alan Kelly to sort of bring his message to the road he hasn't been able to conduct the sort of leadership that he says he would like to do but it is quite unusual for a leader to be put off without ever getting the prospect of leading the party into any national election campaign it's only in the aftermath of the general election of 2020 that Alan Kelly took over he was able to win every every seat that Labour contested in the Shannon elections then. He's been able to win the only Dáil by-election that there's been in the meantime. In fact, it was remarked earlier at his press conference that he has an undefeated electoral record because every time he has personally stood for election, he has always been elected. And any candidate who has run for Labour under his leadership has been elected too. So from that front, very difficult to see really what the trigger point was, other than perhaps surmising that whenever a general election would come, that Labour would struggle to pierce through. Okay, so the question now, contenders for the leadership role um, in the Labour Party, what names are being put about tonight? 
probably fair to say, Claire, that there are not two, maybe one and a half names in circulation around Leinster House this evening. There is a half suggestion of Aon Reardon. He contested the party leadership against Alan Kelly two years ago. He got 45% of the vote then. There are some TDs in the parliamentary party who are known to favour him, who would be in his corner were he to contest it. But the one name which is very difficult to get away from is the one TD who has the shortest period in Dáil Air, and that's Ivana Bacic, the TD who won that Dáil by-election that we mentioned in Dublin Bay South only last summer. Whatever you turn this evening, she is the person who is at the front of all speculation, the idea being that perhaps she could be something of a standard bearer, a new broom, someone who can perhaps lead Labour in a new direction, someone who is maybe not seen to be as abrasive as Alan Kelly has been in his course uh, of time as a, a Labour frontbencher and then as a minister and a party leader. It would be a fairly dramatic change to go from someone who can be as forceful as Alan Kelly to someone who might be seen as a slightly more intellectual, more downbeat character as Ivana Bacic. must also be said as well that Alan Kelly taking this press conference this evening, surrounded by the other 10 members of the Parliamentary Labour Party who seemingly unanimously want him to go, almost felt like a mutual hanging. The rest of the party walking him up to the gallows to make it known that he was going to be thrown overboard and him bringing the rest of them with him and making it known that he didn't want to go. It was everyone else pushing him over the plank. Okay, Gavin Riley at Leinster House, thank you for bringing us up to date on that. And we'll have more on that resignation of Alan Kelly with our political panel later on in the show. Well, to Ukraine now, and it has been another day of fear and bloodshed. The Russian offensive continues with shelling and bombing of the city of Mariupol in the south and Kharkiv, as well as the capital, Kyiv. In the United Nations, the General Assembly voted strongly in favour of condemning the invasion. It was its first emergency meeting in 25 years. Meanwhile, the humanitarian toll continues to worsen. The United Nations now says 900,000 people have fled since the war began. Well, I spoke to Patrick Berry, lecturer in defence and strategy at the University of Bath, and I've asked him for his analysis of the Russian invasion. Yeah, and um, that remains to be seen because there's always claims and counterclaims and, and they, uh, they sally into the cities and so far then are being beaten back. So we don't actually actually know. We'll have to wait and see how that materialises on the ground. Certainly what we've seen is an intensification. Um, you saw the original part of the campaign, the early days, was all about trying to get into Kiev really um, decapitate Zelensky government and put in a puppet. And with a highly mobile sort of... Uh, quite quick, clean in terms of civilian casualties approach. That hasn't come off. Uh, and now it's sort of revert to type for the Russian army by bombarding, um, using their heavy artillery, their missiles, really to scare the population. I think that's what they're trying to do at the moment. They haven't gone full out on Kiev just yet. Um, and it's probably with an eye to the negotiations coming up and to keep the pressure on Zelensky. Yeah, tell us about that Rus Russian strategy here. As you say, at the same time as all of this, there are talks that will resume uh, between both sides tomorrow. Yeah, and th this is my reading of the current situation. You know, um, the next step for Putin would be to commit his forces uh, either in with a more mass bombardment, especially of Kiev, um, to rubbleize it. We've seen them do that before with their air forces and their artillery in other cities, especially in uh, Homs, Aleppo, um, and so and also in Chechnya. So that, that's the next sort of phase, unfortunately. It'd be horrific. You know, you're talking about tens of thousands of, of casualties, I would have thought, um, and millions of refugees um, and Russian casualties too. So it, it's not really what he wanted 
wanted to do at the start of the campaign. At the start of the campaign, he wanted a quick win, a puppet government, you know, and then back to the oligarchs and said, yeah, I told you I could do it. It was a bit of a risk, but here we go. I've got, I've got also uh, uh, more land in, in Ukraine. And so I think now the re- it's, got, it's not gone the way he wanted. And so it's back to this threatening behavior with a view to, I would say, the next step is, is this negotiations, trying to, trying to get the most concessions out of the Zelensky government. Not sure if that's going to come off. Uh, it's not really for us to tell the Ukrainians what kind of deal they should be accepting. That's up to them. Um, but uh, I think if, if, if they're rejected and the ceasefire um, doesn't materialize, I think then you could see um, a much, much heavier bombardment um, of cities to come. Patrick Berry, security analyst and senior lecturer in security at the University of Bath. Thank you for joining us tonight with your analysis on that. Well, let's get more on the situation in Ukraine. I'm joined by Harry McGee, political correspondent at the Irish Times, James Lawless, Fianna Fáil TD, Ruth Coppinger, a social activist, Judith Devlin, professor of history at UCD, and John O'Brennan, director of the Minute Centre for European and Eurasian Studies. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Just what Patrick was saying there about the strategy and the Russian strategy here, John, um, did he... Do, do you think that's correct? Do you think he came in thinking he could take a, the city swiftly and install a public government and, and leave again? In a word, yes. I think Putin's strategy was to try and take Kiev as quickly as possible, to uh, oust Zelensky, possibly to assassinate him. And that strategy simply hasn't worked because Ukrainian resistance has been heroically fierce over this first week or so. Now, Russia has certainly made gains in the southeast. You mentioned Mariupol, for example, on the Sea of Azov. And it is probably the case that they're going to try and take Odessa, the strategic port of importance on the Black Sea. But Kiev is vastly more important, and that's where I think Russian energy will be focused over the next week because or so. there is an idea that they know exactly what they're doing, in fact, and the fact that this, this convoy is now surrounding the city they're in wait there, they're a threat there, and they know that they can stay there, see how talks go, see what manoeuvres they can, you know, arrange for themselves. And, and when they want to go in, they will go in and go in strong. No, I think the strategy has badly misfired in the first week. And the convoy that you refer to is only a convoy because there were so many malfunctions of equipment, uh, fuel that wasn't provided to take those um, trucks forward to Kiev. Um, and also because, of course, of the resistance of the Ukrainian defenders of the city. Um, so, but I think what we're seeing today is evidence of a new stage, and that is the ratcheting up of artillery bombardment particularly. You mentioned Kiev, for example, uh, and Kharkiv. Uh, and there, I think we're getting a flavour of what may happen over the next days, which will be a really significant intensification of the bombing, mm -hmm. much of it indiscriminate, in, in the effort to try and get the Ukrainians to surrender. Uh, Judith, to put this in context, what does history show us about what Putin wants to achieve here, um, what he'd like to see happen, and, and what, what his grudge is, where he's coming from? It's interesting that when he first came to power at the very beginning of the 2000s, he at that stage was making um, statements about Europe. He said, I can't imagine not having good relations with Europe. And that changed from about 2003-04. I think the, the revolutions in Tbilisi and then in, in you know, the 2004 elections that, that had to be rerun after a great popular demonstration on the Maidan in Kiev. And, and I, he has a very peculiar worldview. Um, historically, 
mean, he's looking back to a kind of recreation of the Russian Empire, the multinational uh, Russian Empire, though oddly reframed by him as a sort of, you know, a, a kind of a triune Russian, a greater Russian, a greater Russia fundamentally, yeah. which embraces the Ukraine and Belarusia. Has he a mass of fear, though, that the West is edging even closer with regards to, to NATO alliances and EU expansion? And are those concerns legitimate from where he's coming from? Good question, I think, because uh, essentially in, in his speech, uh, he was trying to give the rationale uh, for the invasion, he talks about the, the Great Patriotic War, i.e. the Second World War, uh, and he says we weren't ready in, in 1941, we tried to appease Hitler, and that meant that we, we lost vast amounts of territory because we weren't ready to, to face Barbarossa, the invasion in 1941, the German invasion in 1941, and we're not going to let that happen again. Um, we have to remember this is a KGB, former KGB agent, uh, brought up and formed in the Cold War. Uh, the West is a hostile uh, entity, and that remains, I think, very fundamental to him. And he sees the whole tenor of, Russia, of, of Western policy from the fall of the wall um, and since, I, I think, the bombardment, the illegal, essentially, not, not covered by UN sanctions, the bombing of Belgrade, uh, the intervention in Iraq, after all, illegal, is against international law. Once, once the West did that, they, they took the rug from under themselves, basically, I think. And, and many other... Also, of course, NATO expansion. And in February, I think, 2007, he sort of says, this isn't going to make for mutual trust. We can't see this as anything other than a hostile act. He has an extremely paranoid view, however, and, and it draws on a kind of rather... Uh, a very naive, simplistic view of history, but a very, you know, a very slanted view of history. Uh like on all this, when you're seeing the EU stance on it now, Ruth, um, we're seeing a unified European approach. Well, that's what they're, they're putting out there. And it, it has an increasingly uh, military focus. Uh, what's, that going, what's that going to lead to? And what are your concerns around that? Well, my concerns are that obviously what Putin has done, he's a tyrant at home and abroad. Um, and unfortunately, the people, ordinary people in the Ukraine, workers, women, etc., are going to be victims of contending geopolitical powers because the you know Western expansion uh, of interests there as well. Um, I think that the only solution is to build the anti-war movement internationally. Um, it is. I salute the bravery of people within the Ukraine, but also it's actually heartening that within Russia itself there is an anti-war movement that can be a very important block on Putin. Four year, in 2014, he would have uh, increased his you know, position at home by his intervention in Crimea. But this is completely different. Already there have been protests in over 50 cities. There have been over a million people have signed petitions against the war in Russia. And I think that that can be a very yeah. important uh, block on him. But, you know, but it's not going, going to stop the further. war. And most of them will be operating out of Siberia within the next couple of months. You know, I mean, it's not practical, Ruth. No, no, and not it's not going to... I mean, if he's going to raise Ukraine and all you have is an anti-war movement uh, stacked up against it, you're not talking about a zero-sum game. You're talking about a whole country get, get, getting raised. John was talking about Kharkiv. You know, we're almost looking at the Groznyification of Kharkiv if we're not lucky. And the Russian tactics are not subtle they will raise cities to the ground if they have to. Yeah, and we, we, can, we can have a period of instability for many years and something more is needed of course, than but, an anti-war movement. But just on that, okay. uh, it's not immediately going to, uh, going to stop the war, 
right? But neither is increased Western involvement. We, we've seen in Iraq. But it didn't is, bring democracy. There, in, there is in, no Western in, involvement. I'm sorry. This is, a, this is a false equivalence that is continually be made by people on the left. They keep arguing that NATO is somehow responsible for the Russian bombs that are falling in Ukraine. That is simply untrue. Because NATO expansion was never explain, a threat to Russia. Explain Russian that because no, ex explain that because that's sure. what we hear from a Russian from a Russian point of view where they're coming from. You know the, the NATO expansion that we've seen in countries right along their borders, where that's going, and then the EU expansion in tandem with that, which they called out back, I think it was 2008, when NATO said, look, we're going to welcome um, Ukraine, we're going to welcome Georgia into the fold here. How could that not be inflammatory for a well, country like Russia? The first stage of NATO expansion happened in 1997, 25 years ago. Putin's problem didn't with the West didn't really begin, as Judith says, until after 2004 or five. And in my view, it is not NATO enlargement that he fears. This is a ruse that he has created to justify this illegitimate war. It is the European Union and the European Union drawing closer to Russia's borders. Because more than anything, Claire, it means the rule of law progressively becoming embedded in Ukraine. And that's mm -hmm. the one thing that Putin and his kleptocratic friends just you cannot know, bear. At, at, the same, at the same time with this, James, just on, on Ireland's approach here, and obviously, look, we're very embedded with EU policy mm. and the decision that's been made about half a billion euro um, worth of worth mm. of sure. money going towards a military package and the Irish aiding with that but still maintaining this neutral stance yeah. you know how realistic is that and how potentially mm. problematic is that to move away from from that because that's what we were sort of hearing in recent days um, from the Thornish they're alluding to look we'll have to relook at our security policy yeah. we'll have to look at you know uh, our neutral stance and, and here. you didn't have to go to the Thornish to hear it because you heard me saying it um, in the Foreign Affairs Committee two weeks ago uh, and on other media uh, I'm saying it actually for a couple of years because I think one of the this is a wake-up call I think for Ireland um, you know Ukraine is not a member of NATO it's not a member of the EU Ireland is a member of the EU we're not a member of NATO uh, at the moment uh, we had maritime skirmishes on our uh, exclusive economic zone off the Atlantic coast the Russian ambassador came into the Foreign Affairs Committee, lied to our faces, uh, told us that it was insane to think they were going to invade. Uh, also described our concerns with things like the submarine cables that link the Atlantic, uh, basically the US data sets to, to European data sets through Ireland. Um, Ireland is the data centre for, for much of Europe, Middle East and Africa. Yeah. Um, he told us it was a James Bond conspiracy. But that's what they've been doing with planes, but, with but aircraft. About, with but what about yeah. our, our neutrality here? So we our our long-held yeah. policy of neutrality yeah. that it would yeah. seem overall there is a sense in, yeah. in the public that we want to... You know, we want to maintain that stance as a neutral. Well, country. I'm not certain that that's the case, but um, so where do you where do you think it, sh it should all go? Well, I think we need to first of all realise that what's what's what we're seeing in Ukraine is conventional warfare. Okay, and that's the extreme case, and that's tanks going across the border, and that's paratroopers jumping in, and that's artillery rockets going off. What we've seen in Ireland and other countries around us uh, for many years now is hybrid, hybrid, hybrid warfare. So we're seeing cyber warfare, we're seeing attacks on financial institutions, on the organs of state, be it the HSC, uh, be it in other countries. Ukraine has been subject to multiple cyber attacks before they were taken down. Uh, we've seen maritime warfare. We've seen the kind of monitoring of submarine cable intersections off the Atlantic coast as, as taken place, not just in the recent exercise, but over the last two to three to five years. So we are actually have already been under attack by other nation states. I think Russia, I think others as well. We haven't responded 
particularly dynamically to that, I think we need to get a more robust response. Okay. There is a commission on the Defence Force out at the moment, and I think we need to get real about the threats to our national security. Okay, sounds from um, what James is saying there, like echoing the words of the Thornish, that and this sort of this this maybe he's echoing my words. <laughs> maybe he is. He could well be. Um, but um, you know, let's talk about that. The, the way we, we seem to be steering politically, at least, towards this more um, European and and militaristic approach. To, to, to combating, you know, what we're seeing, like the invasion in, in Ukraine. Well, one of the things that struck home with me, Claire, when looking at this issue in the past week was about the changes in NATO since 1997 and 14 new members joined NATO since 1997, all of them from the, from the former Soviet bloc. None of them were coerced or forced to do so or, or frog-marched or but it, press into it. But it certainly it. suited the West. But it suited them as well. I mean, there were sovereign nations who made that decision of their own volition. So they had a choice between an increasingly autocratic and totalitarian Russia uh, versus the European Union, which they found uh, attractive. And I think the reason why they, they uh, joined NATO was because Europe didn't have an equivalent defence mechanism for the EU. And I think that perhaps the development of PESCO is something that should seriously be looked at now in the context of the European Union and perhaps moving away from the NATO model, moving to a kind of a more native European... Uh, European European defence uh, model. Yeah, because if one of our neighbours, our sovereign neighbours gets attacked, the question is, what do we do? And that is a question that we must ask. I want to ask Ruth, what, what, what do we do? benign view of NATO being purveyed by a few people on the panel here tonight. In, in the last 20 years, the US since 9-11 has spent 6.4 trillion, not billion, trillion on 9-11 wars. You know, that, that's just one example. Think of what that could have done for humanity. You know, the, the, Britain as well. It was an illegal war in Iraq. Afghanistan, Libya, it hasn't brought peace, it hasn't liberated women, it hasn't done any of the things that were promised. 3,000 people well, died in New York. If I can just finish this sentence, because <laughs> I'm not talking about people just going out waving peace flags, although, you know, laudable as that is. I'm saying that the only way war and barbarism can be stopped is by the intervention of working people, you know, ordinary people internationally coming together. As an example, for example, last year, Italian port workers blocked a shipment of arms going to Israel, right? An isolated example, but an example nonetheless. Google workers in, in 2018 stopped the development of drone technology by refusing to, to, to work with on this. It, it, any war has been stopped by revolts in the past. First World War, it was by workers and others coming out and protesting. So. So don't diminish that. You know, um, Judith, Judith the, the way the conversation, the way the conversation is going here, we are we are seeing it at an increasing level um, because of this invasion and what is happening in Ukraine right now. And should Ireland join NATO? You know, where should we take more of a sort of a, a military approach? Clearly, we, we we don't have any sort of defence spending. We 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 haven't factored that hugely into our budgets. It would have huge consequences for us, not least what the public thinks about all of this, but also security concerns, the consequences of aiding and abetting wars around the world. Well, I remember in a previous uh, life uh, when I worked in foreign affairs, briefly for a few years, um, and I was in Moscow, I was posted to Moscow, and the Soviets in those days, in the sort of mid to late 80s, they didn't believe in our neutrality for a second. They didn't say, you're not neutral. You're actually just hiding behind uh, um, sort of, you know, the security that's provided by other countries, namely, in fact, NATO. Um, so we didn't have to bite that particular bullet. If you think of it, say, somewhere like um, Holland, uh, before the war, it was neutral. After the war, 
it wasn't. And why? Because it experienced war. Um, and I think... So in do sense, you think it's possible for a country to be neutral? Well, uh, Sweden was, unlike, it is, of course, but unlike us, it, it you know, spent a lot of money on defence. It had to, given its location. I mean, the question is, like, are we going to now kind of, you know, we, we are known for our peacekeeping missions and what we do to aid in other countries, John. I mean, if we start going this way, or if that's the way the talk is, like, certainly it's something you think we should be doing, um, us joining um, a European defensive army, um, there's going to be fallout from all of that. Well, I would ask people to put themselves in the shoes of our colleagues and friends from Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania and what they feel, the palpable fear that they fear of Russia. In 1940, their countries were forcibly incorporated back into the Soviet Union against their will. In 1991, as the Soviet Union was falling apart, Gorbachev sent the troops into Lithuania to try to prevent independence. So there's a good reason for it. And what actually is being proposed is a European security structure. This isn't an offensive structure. Nobody wants to go off fighting wars in Africa or the Middle East or anywhere else. I absolutely oppose the American but intervention in Iraq. But how would you know Iraq. that wouldn't happen? Like, um, nobody wants to, but, I mean, you join up and you right sign now. up and then... <laughs> And then you're in. I think we should pay attention to the proposals that President Macron has put forward. He wants mm. to see an autonomous, sovereign Europe folded into the Western alliance, that we have to have the capacity to defend ourselves. We're not living in a kumbaya world, I'm afraid. Mm. There's, 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 particularly our East European member state yeah. colleagues who supported us all okay. the way on Brexit. All right. They we, share that border with and Russia. We'll come back to We have to take a break, but much more uh, coming up from our panel next. Welcome back. Joe Biden gave his first State of the Union address as US president last night. And unsurprisingly, Ukraine was top of the agenda. Putin has unleashed violence and chaos. But while he may make gains on the battlefield, he'll pay a continuing high price over the long run. Well, let's get the latest with our correspondent in Washington, Simon Marks. And Simon, uh, you know, tough words from Joe Biden. He's branding Putin a dictator in all of this. Um, are we going to see the US doing more than they're already doing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, 
Well, I think that's the big question, Claire. I mean, it was stirring rhetoric. There's no question about that. And also the scenes on the floor of Congress as members of both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate waved Ukrainian flags and wore Ukrainian flag badges uh, certainly conveyed a sense of prioritizing the issue. But when President Biden said Vladimir Putin's going to pay a big price and at one point said he doesn't know what's coming, well, we didn't find out last night what What's coming at all in any concrete way beyond the president announcing that he's banning Russian airliners uh, from American skies uh, and launching a new uh, task force uh, to trace the ill-gotten gains of members of the Kremlin elite, those Russian uh, oligarchs with their yachts and their high-speed cars and their mansions. Uh, but, I mean, the specific asks that the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky has made, particularly the imposition of of a no-flight zone over Ukraine to stop the threat to Ukraine uh, by Russian bombers is not something that President Biden and NATO is interested in moving on because they're terrified it would result in them being drawn into a conflict with Russia that, again, Moscow's foreign minister warned today could go nuclear. Um, and and what, what's the country like on this? Is there support, you know, for more intervention here? They've certainly um, got their fingers burnt. Their interventionist policy hasn't really worked out in any way so well uh, for America um, in recent years, decades, you'd say. Um, what, what do others want to see happen? What do Republicans want to see happen? We had Trump out during the week. Well, well, I think, first of all, it's important to make the point that the Biden administration is still somewhat chastened by last August's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. They look at the opinion polls. They see only a quarter of the American public saying that they believe the United States should be deeply involved in uh, the crisis in Ukraine. That's why most of the president's speech last night was about domestic matters, not foreign policy and not Ukraine. Uh, and as for Donald Trump, well, he's been kind of rowing back, uh, having last week described Vladimir Putin as savvy. Uh, well, today he was urging Vladimir Putin to stop killing people in Ukraine and amazingly trying to claim credit for the Ukrainian resistance, saying that they were using the wep weaponry that he had supplied Ukraine when he was on deck as president. Uh, Republicans very much divided. Uh, centrist Republicans absolutely saying Joe Biden is quite right to be standing up to Vladimir Putin, some calling for more, uh, and then the right wing, the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party, still somewhat enthralled to Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. Hey, Simon Marks in Washington for us tonight. Thank you for that. Well, let's discuss more with our panel. And Harry, um, this talk, all this talk about the no-fly zone uh, and the desire for Ukraine to have this no-fly zone imposed um, over over Kyiv, it sounds innocent, but it would have huge implications because a no-fly zone essentially means NATO can call in the minute there's a Russian jet uh, flying over. over yeah, over the, the real politic means that it's impractical because essentially if a no-fly zone were imposed and if a Russian bomber were flying over the Ukraine, it would essentially mean that a, uh, a, a plane, a fighter jet from NATO would have to down the Russian bomber and that would lead to a very quick escalation and widening of the conflict and further destabilise uh, the situation. So that, that, that in, in most people's estimation, is a non-starter. 
How dangerous is that talk, John? Uh, I think there is a danger of escalation and there are a number of ways in which it could happen. That's the most obvious one, I think. But um, I would point to what's happening in the Black Sea as just as dangerous. The Russians have tried to blockade Odessa. Today, interestingly, Turkey said that it was not going to allow further Russian naval ships to go up the Dardanelles Strait. Um, that's interesting, but the, you know there are NATO ships all around the Black Sea. And you know it just takes an accident for to trigger something that could be very, very serious indeed. Yeah, that's why with all this talk about NATO, you could see why there would be an argument there for Ukraine to act actually as a buffer between, between uh, Russia and the West. And this, is, this has been, you know, an idea that has been around, but yet we, we are seeing more of these calls for NATO to be in the country for increased intervention there. Can you see how this would be a way of de-escalating things? Not right now, not where we're at now. But, but as something uh, as something to consider, Jill? Uh, yes, I mean, I would. I mean, even before, and before the war especially, I think, uh, people were pointing to the uh, example of Finland and, you know, the famous policy of Finlandization. And while I've seen some very dismissive um, characterizations of it, in point of fact, uh, it worked quite well. I mean, Finland was very much in you know, a liberal democracy, a, a successful, vibrant economy. Uh, all it had to do was, it had to be very clever. It had to box very clever with this big, um, you know, potentially aggressive neighbour. Um, and so uh, it maintained and cultivated very good relations with, with the Soviet Union. Uh, it followed very closely what the Soviets were doing. It was very well informed. Uh, the uh, quid pro quo was strict neutrality and it, it, it uh, you know, it's not, cleaved it's to not that. not happening here and it certainly well, ha ha hasn't been I mean, happening in the run-up to this. The whole James. point of any kind of nation of self-determination and of any kind of sovereignty and independence and democracy. So the idea that Ukraine, that the national, the world community can, you know, like they did in Africa in, in the 19th century, move pawns around and say, well, let that, that be a buffer zone. That can be a, new, a no man's land and Ukraine can be a buffer between. The, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. I just or wonder what, it, what would all. happen if it was on America's borders. But if you, if you take... Okay, no, if you, if you know you, what I mean, though? Like, if you are to flip it and say, this was happening in Mexico, this is happening in Canada. Yeah. Well, I don't think they make it a buffer zone. I don't think they surrender and say, well, you can do what you want with it because it's, it's, it keeps us out of the way. And if you look at the sentiment in Ukraine, we had the ambassador of Ukraine in the Fianna Fáil parliamentary meeting tonight. We also had it before the Foreign Affairs Committee a few weeks ago as well. One of the points that was most striking to me was we asked about our sentiment. This has gone back a few weeks before the war broke out. So what's the thinking on the ground? Because Putin apparently expected to be hailed as a kind of hero. And she said, no, she said, there was a time, going back perhaps a decade or more ago, when there was some pro-Russian sentiment, and maybe it's closer to 50-50 at that time, when he at Crimea, when he went into the, the, the eastern uh, enclaves, when he attacked and took territory back, that turned on its head. And Ukrainian people said, well, we don't want anything to do with this. You were an invader, you know, you're, you're hostile. And that's perfectly reasonable. You know, and, that's, and I think we're talking about the debate in Ireland. Again, we've seen Russian manoeuvres on our west coast. And at one point I made to Yuri, the ambassador in the committee, I said, well, can you blame us for rethinking our defence and security policies? If you're coming into our borders and into our waters, as they did in Ukraine, as they did in Crimea, why would you, how could you expect anybody to behave any differently than to actually say, well, we want to defend ourselves and we want to employ self-determination? Okay, I just want to, to talk about what's actually happening within Russia and, and the response to this. We had Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny tweeting earlier, uh, we cannot wait any longer. Wherever you are in Russia, Belarus, or on the other side of the planet, go to the main square of your city every day and at 2 p.m. on weekends and holidays. Um, and essentially he was calling for mass protest against what's happening here. Ruth, you spoke about this earlier in the programme. Do you think that there is a growing and a mounting protest, um, an anti-Putin sentiment that is growing within Russia. 
I do, and I think it's going to be very important because uh, I, I visited Russia about four years ago. I was invited to speak at a meeting there because Putin has been suppressing the LGBT community, women, you know, various nationalities. His popularity has been waning as well. And I think what we're seeing in Russia is at least on 53 cities, a million people have signed a petition. What if a million people came out onto the streets in Russia? That would be a real undermining of Putin and potentially topple him. Um, again, not saying immediately, but linked with a broader uh, anti-war movement. And I think, you know, P there's definite indications that Putin isn't getting the support that he thought he would get. And I think, uh, you know, I'd salute people in Russia. It's actually illegal to even protest in Russia. When I was there, one person was allowed out on a protest. So to see people even taken to the streets would in this, Russia is I'm extremely I'm wondering, would brave. this have more influence than, say, the sanctions? You know, we were getting all these heavy sanctions. In terms of what, you know, Russia has insulated itself against, when they, you know, the, you know Putin can take the pain and give the pain to his people in order to pursue what he feels he needs to here. Um, you know, is this sort of, you know, a yeah, popular uh, uprising on the streets would be far more they're, powerful. They're extraordinarily brave and there have been attempts at to, to protest against it. It's a, it's a totalitarian regime. And the question at the moment is, how strong is Putin's Russia at the moment? How, how resistant will he be uh, to any popular uprising? And we've, we've seen administrations fall very quickly in the past and surprisingly so. I, I just think at the moment that, he, that his regime is too strong and a movement will, like that will take too long in terms of time. My difficulty is that even if he, we talked about Afghanistan and Iraq earlier on, even if he does militarily overrun Ukraine and Russia takes control of it, that's only the beginning of the problem. We can see this having a long tail for 10 or for 15 years, as we saw in Afghanistan, in Iraq, where this, where a, a, a unilateral move causes huge stability, not only in that region, but further uh, uh, afield. I agree with Ruth, I think in time, I think people who are protesting against them will hold sway. But my difficulty with that is that that's not going to have any impact in the short or immediate term. Okay, so that, what, that's the, very I mean, the big question is what, do, what will have the impact? Like how, how do, do we come to a place where this is potentially de-escalated now? We've got a humanitarian crisis on our hands. We're seeing, um, you know, images of, of families fleeing, of, of seeking refuge. That's going to be a growing situation right across Europe. Uh, what can happen here? Personally, I do not. I think it's completely unrealistic to imagine that there will be significant popular protests in the street. I mean, I'd love to think th there will be, but I don't think that's going to happen. Just look how terrified his own Security Council are of him. Um, so that's not going to happen. The other thing, one of the things he said apropos of the Maidan, and it's coming back to a point I think that you made, John, um, in 2014, he said we mustn't let this happen here. The way he looks back at the last 25 years is of Western countries coming in and effectively, uh, you know, CIA plots to get people out onto the street to affect regime change. That's how he sees yeah. uh, Tbilisi, Serbia, etc. If we look so, at what happened democratically in terms of the CIA plots, it was KGB plots. Look at the Russian elections just before Christmas last September. You know, the amount of tactics that were used there, running doppelganger candidates where there was a strong Navalny bloc candidate, they would run a candidate with the same name on the ballot paper to confuse the electorate. I mean, really, this was uh, outrageous stuff that was going on. And then if people, you know, then the Moscow poll, uh, there was a pro-democracy, pro-liberal candidate coming through. All of a sudden, the polls changed within hours. And all all of a sudden, the online vote went quiet, uh, and suddenly the counting machine started up again. And hey, presto, the Putin I, candidate was winning. I honestly There's shocking think, stuff going I think on out there. Putin honestly is terrified of his own people because he saw what happened he to, to Yanukovych. We hear that the end of Gaddafi is something Absolutely. that he goes 
over Absolutely. again and again with his entourage. But I think what would be crucial is those two things. Firstly, what kind of losses does Russia experience in Ukraine? And financially, I don't think Putin can afford to hold out at the level they're at now with 200,000 troops for mm. more than about a month because the pressure on Russia mm. would be absolutely immense. We've seen this in the collapse of the ruble, the collapse in mm. shares of leading companies. The inflation rate is running about 70%. So he's already under immense pressure. And to me, that's a really bad thing because it means that he'll try to escalate yes, to try yes, and end yeah. things. And that could mean horrendous violence. Okay, in the the we're going to stay. The great ally, China. And that's where I would uh, have some hopes. China's very well placed to intervene here and try to restrain him. And, and come up with some uh, and whether they be a potential uh, broker here or not, uh, we do not know. But there has been a lot of talk in the UK about sanctioning Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich. Now he says that he is putting the club on the market. Let's get more on this with Miguel Delaney, chief football writer at the Independent. Miguel, thanks for joining us tonight on this. Sanctions really coming down to bear on on Roman Abramovich. Uh, why is he doing this now, right now? Well, I mean, for two potential reasons. One, obviously, is the threat of sanctions, uh, which, is, which have now been brought up by three Labour MPs, including the leader of the party, Keir Starmer, in Prime Minister's question time today. Uh, now, Boris Johnson's answer to that would suggest that actually sanctions might not be as quick as people expect, but obviously it pretty much ha it's put a lot of pressure that has created this situation. But secondly, of course, there's also given what the panel has been talking about and the effect on the Russian economy, and given how much of, um, of Bramovich's personal fortune is still wrapped up in Russia, I think I, I was told today it's still something like 40% is based on industry in Russia. Um, it, basically, his own liquidity is being affected. So I would say both of these factors have combined to create the situation that would have been unimaginable even a week ago. Um, and now Chelsea, after 19 years, I mean, obviously football pales next to the real world consequences of this. But just as the invasion is reshaping uh, the global landscape, it's, it's reshaping the game because it's not an exaggeration to say that Roman Abramovich has been one of the most influential figures in the history of football. He's had that much effect given how much he changed the dial. Or given, sorry, given how much his wealth changed the, di the dial. Yeah. Um, Miguel, what does all of this now mean for the club? Uh, probably not too much, actually, because, um, uh, I mean, Chelsea ultimately are, in the, uh, in the language of American sports business, a blue-chip sports franchise. Football is the most commercially popular sport in the world by far. Chelsea are a Champions League club. They were involved in the plans for the Super League last year. So they are seen as a quote-unquote super club. Uh, Abramovich has had a lot of interest in the, in the last few years. I think in the last two years alone, he's rejected two offers. One uh, for 2.5 million uh, from Todd Booley, uh, who is a part owner of the LA Dodgers. Now, Booley looks like he could buy the club again, uh, but more in his favour because while Abramovich has rejected those offers before, what he wanted now and what Chelsea would get in normal circumstances are 3 billion. But all of these factors, of course, have combined to create a pressure on Abramovich to have this unprecedented situation where he, he is saying the club is up for sale and weakening his hand. And what all that has done has, has meant that Chelsea, a club that could feasibly be worth three billion, whoever buys it, which looks at the moment like it's going to be Bowley's consortium, they could got, they could, they could be got for a knockdown price of maybe under two billion, which which shows the kind of how drastic this situation as well. So I wouldn't have too much concern for Chelsea as a club going forward, uh, but certainly it, it will. Um, we, we won't see what we've got used to, which is Abramovich spending a lot of that wealth 
uh, every summer and, and pretty much buying success for the club. Yeah, and, and seeing how that influences the whole game. Um, we'll leave it there. My thanks, Miguel Delaney, uh, for joining us on that. Also, uh, John O'Brennan and Judith Devlin, uh, because coming up next, more on the resignation of Labour leader Alan Kelly. Stay with us. Well, let's get more on the resignation of Alan Kelly as Labour leader. I'm joined once again by Harry McGee, James Lawless and Ruth Coppinger. And Harry, to come to you first, I'm going to borrow the headline that was, uh, you know, attached to Miriam Lord's article tonight. Emotions run high as Labour assassins decommission AK-47. It was all very dramatic, wasn't it? The oh, way, uh, it was... I mean, I mean, the, the surprise element of this and then and then the, 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 the press conference, which was bizarre, Ex really. Well, excruciating. You had to look at it through your hands. I mean, it was just <laughs> awful. And he was very emotional and all over the place. And within two sentences, he said he was stepping down because he lost confidence. He, his parliamentary party had lost collective confidence in him and they were standing around. And we were talking about Russia earlier on. It reminded me of the famous story by the Russian novelist Vladimir Nabokov, Invitation to a Beheading where a protagonist gets invited to a beheading and then realises that the person getting beheaded is himself. And it was terrible. And then he said there was no rancour. But obviously the, part, the parliamentary party were very unhappy with him. And the, the official explanation is that the party has failed to get a bounce under his leadership. But if that was the actual reason, I mean, no Labour Party leader in the history of the state would have survived a week because... The party hasn't done particularly well in opinion polls ever, really, uh, with one or two exceptions. So there must be another reason for his parliamentary party, in my estimation, discomfiture with Alan Kelly as leadership. And he was shafted very quickly, uh, uh, very suddenly and very abruptly. And it was just embarrassing to look at it tonight. Of course, Ruth, he was, he's a famous face in the party and, and he's the face of someone who is, who is Minister for the Environment, you know, within government. Um, do you think that, uh, you know, when the water charges and all these other issues came to the fore, like it, it was a controversial tenure, if you like, do you think any of that brought to bear on all of this when, when the party talked about, you know, the, the poll slump and how, you know, they weren't getting the bounce they thought, that him as a leader was problematic for the party? Yeah, I think, I think there's two issues. There's the fallout from that period of 2011 to Labour being in government. Alan Kelly was the Minister for Water Charges. Now, don't forget, one of the most popular movements that's taken place in this country in years was against water charges. His face, his association with that amongst the working class is huge. He was also Minister for Housing when the housing crisis, you know, shot up, flared up, homelessness escalated. Labour took all the worst ministries. So that, that government, they have not recovered from the fact that they're considered rotten and betrayal of working class people. But the second issue is where do they place themselves now? The political landscape has changed. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael don't need a prop like Labour used to be the prop for Fine Gael in a coalition. They have to coalesce with themselves. Um, and I think that that's their problem. They're, they're, they're in a bind. You have the Social Democrats who are saying a lot of what Labour maybe would have said in periods gone by. So I just think that we need a genuine socialist left, okay. you know, rather than uh, uh, Labour. Uh, James, how do you think 
all in government are looking on at this, at what happened tonight, this, mm. this, this event, I which did come as, as a surprise to many. Yeah. I think it came as a total shock. I mean, I was in Leinster House this evening and the news broke. And first of all, we thought it was a joke or a rumour and whatever. And ironically, there was a, there was a vote call at seven o'clock. We were all looking forward to watching the plinth and seeing what was going to emerge at seven o'clock. And about two minutes to seven, the bell went off for a vote. So we had to go into the chamber. Labour Party were conspicuously absent in the chamber because they were all out in the plinth. Uh, so we're trying to follow what was the breaking news uh, on social media. Um, I thought well, on Kelly, instead of attending to the job. Well, well, well <laughs> was queuing, waiting to vote. Uh, but what, what I mean, I thought Alan Kelly was and is a good parliamentarian. Um, I think actually he, uh, I, I suppose I've been fascinated in a way as to how he hasn't shifted the dial for Labour at all. They're still stuck in that three, four, maybe a very good day, 5%. Brendan Hallam couldn't get them there either, but at least they gave him a chance at one election. Now, he didn't improve, he actually went backwards. Um, but they gave him a, a full term, as it were. It's Less very unusual. It's job. very unusual in modern politics. To, you know, you don't even get an election. And sorry, any election he did have, he won. Uh, Ivana Batcha came in, you know, there was other Senate uh, candidates, I think somebody mentioned. Um, so I think, he, but one of the things he said himself, and I think it's a challenge for all politics in this age, he said he, with COVID, it was one of the reasons he couldn't get out on the ground. I think he's good in the chamber, but I'm in the chamber watching him. You know, the ordinary people, the general public, are not in the chamber, not paying perhaps as much attention. Okay. So you need to communicate on multiple levels. And maybe he didn't have that to break through to, to the wider public. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, we were in a pandemic as well. We couldn't be hopping around the country in terms of drumming up support for the Labour Party. But, like, let's talk about this, Harry, now in terms of contenders and who will fill the spot. Like, there's just one name that's out there now, and it's that of Ivana Bacic. Yeah, I think Gavin, in his report earlier on, uh, was saying one and a half. But I think, in my estimation, there's only one, and it's Ivana Bacic. And I, I think that Ivana Bacic will end up being the only candidate for the leadership. So it's been a very dramatic uh, accession by her. Mm. She wasn't even a TD this time last year. Uh, she'd been in the Shannon for, for a good number of years. She's there tonight. She was behind yes. tonight. They were all there. Now, maybe I was being a little bit harsh in terms of, and Miriam, in terms of the assassins, but they, they did tell him very directly that he couldn't stay any longer. And I think he referred, Ruth was talking about the water charges and housing, and he did refer to those legacy issues being very, very hard uh, to shake off. But I do suspect that there is some I, other I reason wonder if you're flying the wall, who spoke the okay. ultimate words? We'll have to leave who put the trigger? We'll have to leave it there. That's all from us and uh, from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.